All right. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Major Mondays webinar. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about workers' comp exclusivity and employer coverage issues. And there we go. As always, this is a live question and answer session. So if you have any questions about the uh, material, just post them in the box and we'll get to them at the end. All right, so real basics first. What is uh, Part B coverage, or you might hear it referred to as 1B coverage or Part 2 coverage? Well, so workers' compensation coverage is Part A, uh, and that's it's a form of no-fault coverage. As long as it satisfies the statute, it applies without regard to fault, no need for proof of negligence. Part B employer's liability coverage um, requires proof of negligence. And Part B coverage exists to cover work-related claims that are not workers' comp. And you might be thinking, what does that uh, include? We'll get into a couple examples in a minute. Um, it's issued along with workers' comp coverage to provide the employer with an umbrella for all work-related losses. Uh, and it's automatically included uh, in New York policies. And so this actually shakes out that um, it's unlimited coverage for employers' liability in New York because theoretically the compensation coverage is also unlimited. So um, that's how it ends up working out in New York in terms of employers' liability coverage. So I said we get into some examples of claims that might trigger it. Um, this is not EPLI insurance or employment practices liability insurance. That's stuff like discrimination, harassment, wrongful termination, uh, things of that nature. That's a separate type of coverage. Uh, so what might trigger Part B coverage? Well, every contractor's worst nightmare, the scaffold law in New York, uh, can impose strict liability for uh, contractors, um, and this can actually be for an, a worker injured in the course of their employment. There can be civil exposure, uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, they're collecting workers' comp benefits. So the scaffold law can get you coming and going. Uh, third-party action over suits, also known um, as you know third-party lawsuits or things of that nature. This is where um, a third-party defendant is sued and they try to implead the employer or uh, make a tender of defense or contractual indemnification, something of that nature. Um, derivative claims for family members, they are also covered under the policy. Uh, so, you know, this would be like loss of consortium or loss of services, things of that nature. Uh, contractual indemnification. Um, when I mentioned indemnification before in the third party action over suits context, that's actually common law indemnification. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, contractual indemnification is frequently disclaimed under the Part B policy. So where does that stick it? Uh, it falls under the employer's GL coverage. This is if you agree by contract to indemnify somebody who ends up a defendant to a third party action. Uh, a discovery only suit permissible in both New York and New Jersey where the employer is sued just to gather information for a potential action over suit uh, and intentional wrong. So the employer can be sued for an intentional wrong in both New York and New Jersey, um, but uh, whether or not this is gonna fall under employer's liability coverage uh, depends on the disclaimer wording. You'll notice that pretty much every type of insurance coverage in existence um, disclaims coverage for intentional acts. Uh, no one's gonna cover that. Um, but intentional under the statute is not the same thing as intentional, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so we'll get into some of those standards in just a moment. Uh, but it really depends on the disclaimer wording. Most of them are going to uh, disclaim it under the Part B coverage. All right, so let's talk for a second about this very powerful duty uh, to defend slash indemnify. 
So this arises uh, if the claim even possibly falls within the coverage. And uh, no matter how meritless, no matter how baseless, uh, they may not have uh, a chance in heck of keeping that uh, suit going in civil court. That does not matter. Um, the duty to defend still exists until you're out. Uh, the duty to indemnify, this arises in the contractual context like we just talked about. Um, if liability covered by the policy exists, the duty to defend exists. If it's even theoretically within the policy coverage, the duty to defend arises. Uh, so what happens if you're not sure if you actually have an obligation to defend this case? Uh, well, best practices is to issue a reservation of rights letter saying you reserve the right to disclaim coverage subject to further investigation and defend for now. Um, the duty to defend does not end until judgment or settlement uh, or the insured agrees that you're not liable for coverage. Um, a policy limit tender, you can offer your full policy limits uh, pre-trial. That does not end your duty to defend. That just still does not get you out. Um, if an insurer does not defend and is ultimately found to be liable, this is why we recommend the reservation of rights letter. Um, there could be a bad faith claim by your insured, breach of contract claim by your insured. You could get hit with attorney's fees and expenses from the case. Uh, you'd still be bound to pay any good faith settlement within the policy limits that your insured reaches. Um, you're bound to pay any excess judgment if there's a pretrial offer within the policy limits that wasn't accepted because you know you were saying you weren't on the hook. Uh, you can basically, th this action is going to go on without your involvement. You'll have absolutely no say in it, and you could get stuck with the consequences. So uh, if you're going to refuse to appear in an action on a basis that you don't have coverage, be very sure and make sure you do that uh, reservation of rights letter. Now, I figured I'd mention this um, recent case, uh, this American Western Home Insurance Company versus uh, Jonadge Realty. Uh, this is actually uh, some clarification on in an area that uh, previously New York was very vague about. So the question is, you say you don't have to defend uh, and you issue a reservation of rights. And then what happens if you're ultimately right and you've spent all this money defending this case? Do you get that money back? Uh, well, the answer used to be pretty ambiguous. Some courts said yes, some courts said no. Finally, we have some clarity on the subject and you can see this just came out at the end of 2020. Um, no recoupment of defense costs if you're ultimately uh, not obligated to defend unless it's in the contract. So make sure if you plan on recouping defense costs in cases you ultimately do not have to defend, uh, make sure you specify that in the contractual agreement. All right, so what goes into a good reservation of rights letter? How can we cover ourselves if we're planning on denying later on? So just note that there's no statutory requirements for these. These requirements have been carved out from common law over time, just you know, courts interpreting the reasonableness of the letters that the carrier serves. Um, but we do have some basic tenets we can operate off of, so hopefully these will be helpful. Uh, these apply in almost every context. The court has found that these are necessary. You gotta give fair and prompt notice to the insured of your intent to raise a coverage defense or pursue declaratory relief later on. In other words, um, pursuing a, a you know, declaratory judgment that you're out of the case. Uh, you got to state possible defenses to coverage with uh, reference to specific policy provisions. Uh, so you can't just say we're, you know, disclaiming on the basis of a policy exclusion. No, uh, reference the specific section of the policy, reference the language, be very clear about why you have this defense to coverage. Uh, if further investigation is required and you're just defending in the interim, notify the insured uh, that all rights are reserved and subject to additional facts. Um, you're 
actual disclaimer of liability later on or coverage. Um, be unambiguous, be very clear about what is happening, why you were doing this, what the insured's rights are. Um, sometimes uh, we recommend making sure that uh, the insured is advised of the right to obtain independent counsel on the issue of coverage, just in case you know we end up almost somewhat adverse in the contractual interpretation argument. Um, just be very, very clear about what's happening here. Um, just note in New York, disclaiming bodily injury coverage for an accident in New York, you have to give notice to the insured, the injured party, uh, or any other claimant as soon as possible, or the denial will be deemed ineffective. So um, when you ask what's as soon as possible, uh, just know undue delay. The court is gonna be looking at the reasonableness of the time it took you to issue that letter. Uh, so basically do it as soon as you know. Uh, reservation of rights does not extend the duty to disclaim uh, as soon as possible. So when you issue the reservation of rights, that doesn't mean you can decide on the duty to um, on the duty to disclaim coverage, you know, several months down the road. No, um, you have to uh, make that disclaimer as soon as possible. Uh, you cannot delay on that front as well. Um, defenses not raised at the time of your coverage position being issued are considered waived. So when you advise your insured um, in a reservation of rights letter. You want to be very careful that you raise every possible defense to coverage uh, and including when you appear in the case you want to make sure that you're raising every possible defense to coverage otherwise new york is just not carrier friendly and those defenses are going to be waived all right uh so we're going to get into the second portion of the webinar here what is workers comp exclusivity so workers comp is uh referred to as uh, the exclusive remedy in the new york and new jersey jurisdictions and this is the exclusive remedy doctrine. Basically says workers' comp benefits are the exclusive remedy for work-related injuries for these employees. There are very limited exceptions to these. Um, note that an intentional wrong is uh, an exception in both New York and New Jersey. This is an intentional wrong by the employer. Uh, New Jersey, you have section eight, uh, 34 colon 15 dash eight, uh, titled election surrender of other remedies. Uh, that's the name of the applicable statute. In New York, we're gonna be looking at sections 11 and 29.6 of the workers' comp law. All right, we mentioned the intentional wrong exception, and you can see we got quite a few bubbles here. This one uh, is interesting. So in New Jersey, you might've heard these referred to as a laid low claim against the employer. Um, it requires this substantially certain uh, standard. Uh, and basically the employer needs to be substantially certain that uh, this is going to result in injury, uh, and it has to be more than a fact of life of industrial employment and beyond what the legislature intended to immunize the employer for in the Workers' Compensation Act. Um, so that's the standard, and you can see what actually doesn't fall in there is intent. Uh, substantially certain that it's probably going to result in injury, um, but not I intended to hurt my employee. Uh, this is why it can get weird with the employer's liability coverage, depending on how your disclaimer is worded. Um, New York Section 11, uh, you must the employer's action has to be deliberate and intentional, not merely negligent and reckless. Not even gross negligence gets you there. Uh, it has to be deliberate and intentional to, uh, you know, permit a um, intentional wrong claim against the employer. Uh, you can sue a co-employee in New York for an intentional wrong and collect workers' comp uh, if the employer did not authorize or instigate that co-employee's actions. So you can still get both. 
you can't circumvent statutory protections by refusing to accept benefits in a compensable accident, so it's not either or. Um, you do have to proceed under the workers' comp law if it's subject to the workers' comp law. Um, specific acts directed at causing harm are needed in New York. Employer knowledge of risk is not enough, uh, so the New Jersey laid low standard would likely not uh, fly in New York if you're trying to make an intentional wrong argument. Uh, and here's a little subrogation special close to my heart. You are permitted a lien under Section 29 in New York and Section 40 in New Jersey in both New York and New Jersey on employer intentional wrong actions. You are, that is a third party action for the purposes of the statute. You are permitted to recover against those. All right, Section 11, grave injury. Uh, these are specifically spelled out in the statute. The employer is not liable for an injury sustained by an employee uh, in the scope of their employment uh, or for indemnification slash contribution to a third party defendant unless there's a grave injury. So we mentioned before, contractual indemnification is usually going to be disclaimed in the employer's liability policy. That's going to fall under the employer's CGL. Um, but this grave injury uh, thing can get common law indemnification contribution from a third party defendant. Um, so there's specifically listed injuries and these are rigorously enforced. Um, it is not, uh, you know, it can't just sort of be on the cusp. It's got to clearly be proven to be one of these within the statute. Uh, death, total loss, or, uh, total loss of use or amputation of uh, an arm, leg, hand, foot, loss of multiple fingers or toes, paraplegia, quadriplegia, uh, things of that nature. Uh, it's specifically spelled out in the statute itself. Um, this does not protect against um, contractual indemnification, as we mentioned before. Section 11 does not save the employer, and that's actually even stated in the statute. It says, except for contractual indemnification. So you're still on the hook for that. You can't claim Section 11 if you agreed to contractually indemnify someone. Uh, and employer's liability coverage in this grave injury instance would, in fact, be triggered. All right, Section 29.6, co-employee protection. Um, so workers' comp is still the exclusive remedy for uh, an employee injured or killed by coworker negligence. And what Section 29.6 does in New York is it applies the Section 11 protections given to the employer uh, to the co-employees. And an employee acceptance of workers' comp benefits for work injury would bar a claim for an intentional tort. So even if you're alleging that my coworker did this uh, intentionally, uh, if you elect to pursue comp and receive comp, uh, it's going to bar that intentional tort claim. That's a situation where it is actually one or the other, either or. Um, the protection is powerful. And so I, I put here, think dead as to one, dead as to all. Um, so specifically in this general special context, um, and there are several webinars on that very issue, um, but specifically in the context of say like a Lent employee, uh, where there's someone that pays and hires and then someone else that supervised the work uh, you know, say a security guard lent to a job site or something of that nature, where there's kind of two employees for the purposes of the statute. Well, um, if the coworker is one of the special uh, employer uh, and the claim is dead as to the special employer, it's also dead as to the general employer. Uh, it's almost like a, um, you know, fruit of the poisonous tree kind of thing, where as soon as uh, the protections apply, it applies to everyone, the coworker and any conceivable employer. So uh, the suit would be barred as to a special, uh, a suit barred as to a special employee will bar as to a general employer and uh, vice versa. All right, let's see if we have any questions before we wrap up for this month. 
oops, opened up the attendees, not the questions. All right, looks like we're good on questions. Well, uh, thank you as always for joining. Hope we'll see you next month uh, and uh, hope everyone has a good day. See you later.